Veni, Veni, Venias, and welcome to our podcast. Good evening, and welcome to Ask Medievalist. I'm M, the Ask portion of our program, and joining me tonight, as always, is Dr. Jesse Noose. Hello! Well, okay, so tonight we're going to join a genre that has become incredibly popular in terms of podcasts, and that's uh, two people who just talk about movies. Yay! I feel like... Over also the, a specific movie. Though. Yeah, specific. <laughs> we're going to talk about a specific movie. I feel like over the um, course of the pandemic, I've listened to probably five times as many podcasts about movies as I have actually watched movies. So <laughs> it's a good way to get to know like what was out there and what did you miss and what would you like to see? It's a great way to have a little preview. So tonight we're yes. going to talk about The Green Knight. Yay! Uh, which is what? A, it's a 2021 film. I should have written yes. this down um, before we started the film. Directed by David Lowry and starring Dev Patel. Yep. And also a whole bunch of like really famous and cool British actors and stuff. But yes, let's face it. You came for Dev Patel, right? Right. That is mostly why. Yep. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, so we've been talking, obviously, about chivalry, and um, Arthur plays heavily into that, of course. Mm -hmm. So, um, And so one of the important things to sort of point out, before we start to get to like, the nitty-gritty of the movie, is that what the movie does is not that different from what these tales have always done. Which is to say, even though chivalry did exist as a code in the Middle Ages, it was also always already a story and a fantasy about a code that you could live by. And probably sort of the most obvious ways in which it has influenced us in the modern world, even before the Green Knight, there have been tons of movies about knights. <laughs> um, so it never really went away. But also, um, there are things like Star Wars, Mm -hmm. which I want to bring up, because Star Wars is essentially a combination of medieval knights and medieval samurai, so Europe and Japan, which, of course, definitely overlap in certain ways as genres and movies and interrelate, and they have borrowed from each other. Um, and, of course, were thrown into the mix with what became the Western, which is a modern genre that is very much based on both medieval knights and medieval samurai. So um, all of these things kind of mix together <laughs> and give us things like Star Wars, which is a modern mythology, right? Mm -hmm. With all the sort of type characters and archetypes and everything else that we think of. Um, of course, the Force, which is more, I guess, you know, on the sort of Japanese side, you might think of like Shinto um, or even maybe Buddhism as opposed to Christianity of Arthur and the Knights. But it's, you know... The similarities are many people have written books about it. Um, but it's just a sort of reminder that these stories really still matter to us and they continue to matter. Um, and that really they mattered in the Middle Ages in the same way. So I thought I'd give us a quick rundown of some of the sources and we'll talk about the, the original 
poem <laughs> yes. of Gawain and the Green Knight. Um, and then sort of what, what does the movie do and why? And what are some of the big questions that are raised? So this will be also sort of more of a discussion in some ways. Um, but yeah, quick note on Arthur, because we've skirted around this, but I don't think we've been definitive. So um, Arthurian sources kind of break down into two parts. <laughs> One of them is before Geoffrey of Monmouth. And the other okay. are after Geoffrey of Monmouth. <laughs> he was like the watershed moment that we... He's the watershed. We look yeah. at, okay. Yes. Yeah, and one of my grad school colleagues, uh, Joshua Byron Smith, is one of the big experts. Um, and he and Georgia Henley edited um, a companion to Geoffrey of Monmouth. I call him Geoffrey. Of course, it's Geoffrey, but G-E-O, you know. It's right. so you make it sound old old and fancy. <laughs> but yeah, so they they edited um, a book, right, a companion to Geoffrey of Monmouth. So that is, um, yeah, so check it out. Anyway, but he's one of the big scholars of all this. Um, and because Geoffrey in Latin is Galfridus, these are pre-Galfridian <laughs> traditions and post-Galfridian traditions, right? So, right. as I said, before and after Geoffrey of Monmouth. Um, so, Geoffrey of Monmouth flourishes in the first half of the 12th century. So, kind of 1100 to 1150. Although he could have easily been born as early as, like, 1070. Um, we okay. just, we have no idea. Um, he could have lived to be 80, in other words. <laughs> we know he dies, like, in the 1150s, but... Okay. Um, how old was he? We don't know. He was at least in his 50s. He could have been in his 80s. Who is to say? But um, anyway, so before him, from sort of the 8th to the 12th centuries, you do get references to Arthur as a king, as a leader, in different ways, um, in both Welsh texts and in Latin texts. Um, and so Arthur can be seen as Welsh or as Celtic. Um He's sometimes just name-checked, sometimes there are slightly longer stories, sometimes there are just kind of lists of his knights. So he is this figure who's kind of out there. Mm -hmm. But in, in a wide variety, though, of different places and different types of stories, right? Um, he's not quite the figure we know. So he is like a king or a knight. I mean, he's important, but he's not necessarily clear. Um, one of the names that's attached to some of these early stories is Taliesin, who may have been a historical bard, who is, of course, then becomes part of the legends himself. Um, but anyway, so there are these sort of early ways in which he's mentioned. But Geoffrey of Monmouth <laughs> um, decides, like, this is his thing. This becomes okay. his thing that he wants to do. So he might be considered the first Arthurian, really. Okay. He needed a project. Um, so he, what he did with these characters is basically the, the origins of what we now know. Um, and actually, in his introduction to the companion, to Jeffrey of Monmouth, Josh says that um, something to the effect of how unusual it is for an author to be so completely eclipsed by their creation. Right? Mm -hmm. Everybody in sort of the Western world, and really even beyond, because of the way it's perpetuated itself, knows about Arthur. Or at least knows sort of about these knights and the legends, right? Yeah. But nobody has heard of Geoffrey of Monmouth unless you were a graduate school colleague of Josh. <laughs> sure. Which is unfortunate. It's very unfortunate, right? But even medievalists don't really know who he was. Part of the reason is that nobody quite knows who he was. We'll talk about that. But um, anyway, so he he created this thing that just went on to fascinate people ever since, basically, right? I mean, for the next... 900, well, 
thousand years and counting. Yeah. Right? Um, so <laughs> good for him. <laughs> um, but he comes up with three Latin texts that we know of, basically, and they, they feed into each other. But one of the first one is the prophecies of Merlin. Okay. And this kicks off an entire genre. It's not as popular anymore, but there becomes this entire genre of the Middle Ages that's like prophecies of Merlin. Right. So long before um, Nostradamus or whatever. Right. Like prophecies of Merlin <laughs> is one of those early things. Um, or for anyone who watched or read Good Omens. Uh, yes. Uh, right. You have the yes. The one the book nice, of true prophecies. The nice and accurate yes. prophecies of Agnes Nutter. Which, yes, exactly. Yes. Yep. Yeah. So the prophecies of Merlin, this is a book like that. It's one of the early ones. And it's the first big one of with Merlin like this, right? Mm -hmm. So prophecies were around. But this idea, I mean, it kicked off Merlin, you know, you, you would never get the story without him. So <laughs> there he is. Um, and then we get the book that's generally known as the history of the kings of Britain, that Geoffrey actually called on the deeds of Britons. Um, so De Gestis Britonum. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's the big one. That's where you get, um, essentially, it includes actually the prophecies of Merlin, but it's, it gives us our first real picture of Arthur. It's the settlement of the British Isles, basically up through the Anglo-Saxon invasion. Okay. And this is why this then gives us Arthur with Merlin, gives us a lot of the origins of all the stuff we know about Arthur, that sense of him as this early king, um, in Britain, mm -hmm. right? As, uh, you know, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, right? I'm Arthur, king of the Britons, yes. <laughs> as he keeps saying. Um, I didn't vote yeah, for you. Yeah, right? So, okay. Right, exactly. <laughs> you don't vote for kings. Yes. Um, yeah, so this is where we get that, right? Um, it's the, right. It's the history of the kings of Britain. This is how it becomes known. And that is the point, right? That Arthur gets plopped into this lineage plopped into this legacy of what it means to be Britain and also into this idea that he is fighting foreign invaders. So be they mm -hmm. Roman, be they Anglo-Saxon, um, later with Mallory, it's going to be the Saracens, right? That he is defending Britain, right? His isle against those who will disturb it or whatever, right? So we get all that. Um, and the final Latin text, um, is actually the life of Merlin. So he goes back to Merlin. <laughs> okay. And he completes that right before he dies. Um, I'm going to say fair enough. So I always thought Merlin was the most fun. So Yeah. And there you go. Right. Yeah. He's And he's really interesting because he is seen, he's the son of possibly the, or, the devil or a devil mm -hmm. frequently, sometimes just a, an, an evil dude. But it's usually seen more often that he has sort of supernatural-ish origins yeah, in a bad way, but that he becomes good, right? He sort of chooses good, mm -hmm. or God decides to use him, you know, and he so he chooses God against his father, <laughs> or whatever. I feel like um, there's a line, something about him getting baptized. Um, in, yeah, yeah. All in, of these are, of course, very Christian. So. Yeah, in a later work, at yeah. least, um, yeah. the devils complain about how they made him wash in the water or something and it yeah. made him not evil anymore right but that's sort of the idea right that he um 
he is, of course, he has access to magic, right? And this helps mm-hmm. explain how sort of, <laughs> and, and how he has access to prophecy and all these things. Yeah. Um, but anyway, he famously, he has a lot, he has a, a number of pupils. Some of them are guys, but the most famous ones tend to be the women. So like Morgan Le Fay, who's Arthur's half-sister, um, for oh, example. I, I don't think I realized of- she was his student. Yes, generally. That's usually... Not always. I mean, that's the thing. There's so many versions of all of these that not everything always happens. But generally speaking, uh-huh. <laughs> one of his students is Morgan Le Fay, and another one is the Lady of the Lake, um, oh. who is sometimes Vivian, sometimes Nimue, sometimes some combination of those two names. Um, and she's the one who ultimately um, makes him disappear. Uh, either because he's sort of lusting after his female students a lot. <laughs> not great. <laughs> Not unheard of, but okay. not great. Yeah. Um, Morgan sort of doesn't care, or, so, you know, whatever. But Nimue, or Vivian, or whatever you're, you're going to call her, um, she, there are different possibilities. Um, one of them is that she, um, you know, does some magic to keep him from touching her. I think she inscribes some stuff, like, on her crotch. Um, okay. And actually, apparently a couple years ago, they found a new um, text. It's not a new text, obviously. <laughs> but they just refound A um, newly found text. A French... Yeah, some fragments of a French um, text of Merlin. Um, I think now, because like the Bristol Merlin now, I think. Um, and in this one... Um, I think she inscribes it on rings, possibly. Mm. Um, and so, you know, it got made less, <laughs> more PG okay. rated, I guess. It was made more PG sure. rated or something. But anyway, um, so she she's sort of trying to escape him, perhaps. Um, and in the end, she sort of seals him up in this cave. There's another version that comes along that she seals up in the cave to, like, sort of keep him to herself or maybe keep him with sleeping with other people that don't want to sleep with him but she goes home to him every night maybe who's to say anyway eventually he gets sealed up in a cave is the point um he can maybe get out occasionally if she lets him out when arthur dies they go get arthur in certain versions anyway mm. um but anyhow so so this is why he's ultimately <laughs> and it's interesting because you could sort of say well women are his downfall but you know he's doing stuff maybe he shouldn't be doing so yeah anyway so yes, yeah, so Merlin, there he is. He's important, but Jeffrey really is. This is his thing. Um, the big questions about Jeffrey: Was he Welsh? He's Jeffrey of Monmouth, so he is probably from Monmouth. He's possibly a Briton. Mm-hmm. Um, he is ultimately made a bishop, which would suggest that he is part of the Anglo-Norman establishment, because they otherwise he wouldn't have been presumably recommended to be a bishop. There's a huge debate about whether his version of all this, of Arthur and everybody, does it support Welsh nationalism? Does it subvert it? Does it romanticize it? Does it do something else? It's a huge and continuing debate, and a lot of it depends on how you see him. Do you see him as sort of an interloper who didn't care about Wales, as someone who cared about Wales but saw the complexity, as someone who considered himself Welsh, as someone who didn't consider himself Welsh? Um, it's, it's a huge giant debate and this is not the time to solve it, but, okay. um, this is a it's worth, little 
Hmm? Random aside, and maybe we'll cut this out, but is there something about whales and people being magicians? Ha! Yeah, well, because of Merlin, right, um, and Arthur and all the stories, Mm -hmm. yes, then you, you get this sense Celtic, it's the stereotype then that gets tied to Celtic identity. Okay. So you get like Glendower yeah. uh, in Shakespeare, right? Yes. And um, yeah, this is a real stereotype that is created. And this is part of the debate about Jeffrey, right? Um, he helps create it. <laughs> is he doing it on purpose? <laughs> well, not just yeah. on purpose, but like, why is he doing it? Is it positive? Is it negative? Is it complicated? Is he doing it as someone who considers himself not Welsh? Is he doing it as someone who considers himself to be Welsh? We don't know. We just don't know. And so the people who do care about him deeply have written a lot, Mm. a lot about this. Some people really want him to be Welsh. Some people really don't. It's really hard to know. Okay. Uh, He spent a lot of his life at Oxford, if that helps. (laughs) But it doesn't. Because remember, those were like the universities. Where is he going to go? Right. That's where he's going to go. That's where everybody went. Right. Um, You know, is the place of religious, you know happenings and intellectual happenings and everything else. Right. So anyway, um but yeah, so so it's this really interesting thing that from the very beginning these texts that are so deeply tied to British identity bring up all these questions of identity. Right? Um so they are so important to the British Isles as a whole, which means like England and Wales and even Scotland perhaps. Um and, you know, all the peoples who lived within, so including also definitely Cornish, right? So all of these peoples who live here, and yet the identities behind them, what they're intended to say, even from their origins, are very, very unclear. Um, so that's kind of important. Um, then following up as we move through the 12th century, so as we hit like the late 12th century mm-hmm. and move on, um, you get people like Marie de France, who is a famous female writer who's from France, writes in French, but is living in the court of Henry II in England with Eleanor of Aquitaine, who famously collects people. We talked about her Um, last year in our Halloween episode. We talked about her stories about werewolves. Werewolves, yes. Absolutely, right? So a lot of her... Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And check out her lays. Uh, lays meaning songs, right? But they're, they're short stories. And they're brilliant. And a lot of them are about Arthur and his knights. Yeah, absolutely. Right? So um, so there she is. She's sort of in that tradition of kind of the short stories about him. Then you get people like Chrétien de Troyes, who writes some big, long stories. We've, I think we brought him up. Maybe probably in the chivalry episodes. We should have anyway. He definitely has a lot mm-hmm. to say about chivalry. Um. Okay, so we, we get some people who write their own, um, Robert de Bourne, who, you know, so we get these other versions that go out there, and then we start to get people who take what's there, Jeffrey, but also all the people who sort of come right after him, and start lengthening, transforming, transposing, translating. So um, a lot of this is in French, of course, but you do get stuff occasionally in other languages. Um so we get what's known as the Lancelot Grail or the Vulgate Grail, mm-hmm. um, which is attributed to Walter Mapp, but probably was whatever attributed. We'll just put it that way. Not necessarily attributed anymore, but at one point was attributed to Walter Mapp. Um, 
this is 13th century French um, and expands a lot of the sources that came before. Um, and so you, this is where you really start to get the big old explosion of stuff, right? So we're already in the 1200s getting a big explosion of all of this stuff. Um, and finally, you get Mallory uh, in the 1400s. Um, Thomas Mallory, you know, probably born like 1416, died around 1471. Um, he was in prison a lot. He was not chivalrous. <laughs> he murdered. He raped. Yes. He did some stuff. He stole. His final stint in prison is uh, 1468 to 1470, I think. And um, that's probably when he wrote, or finished at least, what we now call Le Mort to Arthur, which was his title for the final chapter. But when this was published by William Caxton in 1485, that's just what he called it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Mallory compiles everything he could get his hands on and translates it into English basically. I feel like so, if you're if you've done yeah. a little research into Arthur like Thomas Mallory is the person He's the you've one. heard of probably. Yes. yes, because he offers what sort of comes to be thought of as kind of the definitive version, which is to say because he really collates all this other stuff that's out there. Mhm. Um and then he does what people have always done, which is modernize it to his own time. Mm-hmm. So he transposes it to contemporary England, to his sure. contemporary England, right? So he sort of identifies, like, where, you know, Camelot is and, like, where these places are. He identifies them with modern towns, right, mm-hmm. in his own day. Towns that are still there, of course, and trade on this as tourism today, right? Right. Well. But then, as I said, he also does things like the Saxons become the Saracens, right? So the Ottoman Empire is the thing when Mallory is writing. It makes more sense for them to be the potential foreign invaders, right? Whereas right. Saxons are... Are English by the time he's right. writing this, you know, a couple um, hundred years yeah. can make a big difference. Turns out, yes, yes, interestingly, um, and yet these stories are still seen as so important, right? But again, we have this really funny question of identity. We have this guy who is himself not a chivalrous knight, <laughs> writing what comes to be sort of seen as the kind of definitive version of the ideals of chivalry. Mm-hmm. Right, the Arthurian legend. Um, yeah, which is interesting. He definitely isn't super Christian in the idea of like being meek and mild and not stealing or murdering, or obviously committing sexual assault. Um, and yet, the whole idea of the Grail quest, right, which is about purity and virtue, <laughs> um, is so important. So anyway, it's again right. It's, so this the weird things how important these stories are, but the ways in which identity is tied up into them. These things have always been part of this story, Mm -hmm. I guess is the point. Um, But yeah, so Mallory is sort of the version we know. In a lot of ways, we do have Caxton to thank for that, because he published it. Sure. Right? (laughs) So things that are published, you can make more of them faster. More people can buy them and read them. So um, yeah. So there we go. So that's so that's a sort of quick sense of the the sources for Arthur. It's a it's a very very I mean people spend their lives talking about this stuff. So this is yeah. a very tiny summary. But um but anyway, and that's obviously the quick- there's like a ton of stories in there like and yes. little side quests and this and that. I yes. guess you could we can call like Sir Sir Gawain and the Green Knight mm-hmm. kind of a side quest, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
yeah, he's a main character. It's, it's a fun little story. But yeah, but, but he's um, yeah. This mm-hmm. specific poem is very famous. It is medieval. <laughs> the poet is anonymous. Um, some t- it's sometimes known as the Pearl Poet, the Gawain Poet, but we don't know who it was. So there right. you go. <laughs> right. Um, as they were all sort of packaged up in the same book together, right? Yes. Yeah. There was yeah. like a couple of different um, um, texts. It's another one yeah. of these. I think we've talked about them before. Uh, Cotton Nero. Yes. AX. Uh, yep. Because that crazy British guy who organized his library <laughs> using Roman generals or Roman emperor busts. Uh, yep. And then <laughs> the British library yep. just went with it. So yep. there you go. Hey, and we got to say, we thank Sir Robert Cotton for his library. Yes. And for his he, busts. You it's know, an incredible collection. And yeah. the idiosyncrasy of the organization is just uh, adds to the charm. It does. I mean, honestly, it makes it a lot easier to remember the manuscripts in a lot of ways mm-hmm. than the ones. I mean, it's not like you can't memorize numbers, but sure, you know, Cotton Nero is easier <laughs> to remember than like manuscript one five five right ll or whatever you know whatever right. <laughs> like. Um, Yes. So, uh, but anyway, yeah, so he's um, this person who is probably male, but of course doesn't have to be, writes, um, so in the manuscript, basically, um, you've got Patience, Cleanness, Sir Gawain, and Pearl. Um, And so it is maybe not obvious, (laughs) uh, the Pearl poet, um, or the Gawain poet, that Patience... Cleanness and Pearl are all about sort of virtue and Christianity, right? Okay. Um, so Pearl, um, you know, is basically virginity. <laughs> um, he it's it's also it's a dream poem, the actual poem mm-hmm. Pearl, right? He encounters a pearl maiden, this sort of beautiful woman, um, who like shows him the heavenly city and stuff as you know he's asleep. Um, but the sort of metaphor of the pearl is is basically right virginity mary is a pearl right her you know she has a kid without while she's still a virgin okay anyway right so the pearl right the perfection of canon virginity anyway so gawain stands out is my point from this Mm -hmm. collection right (laughs) um and yet it, it also doesn't and this is kind of the important point of that Right. Cleanness, also called purity, mm-hmm. um, or maybe translated, I guess, as purity. Right. Patience. Pearl. Gawain stands out to us as being different because we're like, oh, it's an Arthur story. But of course, it's actually about the exact same ideas that these other mm-hmm. poems are about. Right. It's about Christian virtue. <laughs> um, it's just told in a way that is maybe more exciting to the modern reader and also sure. the medieval reader, to be fair, probably. <laughs> so, yeah, let's start. So Gawain, this is not necessarily mentioned in this poem, but anyone reading this poem would probably have had a sense already who Gawain was. He is supposed to be super, super famous. He was super famous. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, this is all from like the 14th century. Um, so, I mean, Gawain, the poem, Gawain. So, you know, he's been around. He's super famous. Um and the poem also suggests that he is super famous. 
Um, so he is <laughs> um, the he is Morgan Le Fay's nephew. Um, Morgan, of course, is Arthur's half sister. Right. Um, so he's one of technically her- not related to Arthur. Am I thinking yeah, yeah, about yeah. this right? His, like no, no. His mom, he's also Arthur's nephew. His mom okay. is Arthur's half-sister. They're all half-sisters. Um, there's this group, <laughs> the, the sisters are half-sisters okay. of Arthur. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, yeah, so they're all half-sisters, but, you know, they're still siblings. Mm-hmm. So he's still basically Arthur's nephew. Arthur's nephew. Okay. Yeah. Um. So, um... Morgays. Morgays is his mom. So she is the sister of Morgan Le Fay, mm-hmm. half-sister of Arthur. Is she... Is she... Good? Is she... Like, Morgan Le Fay is kind of not... Morgan Le Fay is ambiguous. Yeah, well, Morgays... Yeah. So this is... Ah. Uh, hmm. This is an interesting sort of question. The answer is mostly yes. In the Middle Ages, she was not seen as bad. The modern era has occasionally seen her as a little more of a villain. Um... She, okay, so first off, she has a lot of kids. She's married to King Lot of Orkney. So she's the Queen of Orkney, right? Which are... The Orkney Islands. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Still around. They're still there. Yeah. Yeah. So this is Orkney. So King Lot of Orkney. So she's, so this, so Morgan, um, oh, this is Morgan. Sorry. Mm -hmm. Morgan Le Fay. Um, And she knows who she is. She, in many cases, is seen as having been apprenticed to Merlin. Um, and this is where she gets Le Fay, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, she's, because oh, Fay she, and... She's a witch, basically. Yeah. Like fairy. But yeah, she's mm-hmm. a, kind of, she's a witch, right? She's a fairy. She's not actually a fairy, but she's, you know. Um, her sisters are sometimes also seen as having been maybe apprenticed to Merlin, as having some, potentially having some power, but not in the same sense as Morgan Le Fay, right? Morgan Le Fay is very much seen as kind of, even in some ways, potentially equal to Merlin. She kind of, she's sometimes seen as being behind the orchestration of bringing down Arthur's kingdom. Um, she's really seen as a force to be reckoned with. She is frequently seen as evil, <laughs> therefore, mm-hmm. well, a woman with great power. Right. Um, now, Morgay's, um, it's a little less clear that she isn't necessarily um, seen as evil. Um, It should be pointed out, (laughs) in addition to being Gawain's mother, that she is... um, Let's see. (laughs) Gawain is the son of Morgays and King Lot. He's got a lot of brothers. Okay. One of his brothers is Mordred. Hmm. Mordred is possibly the son of Morgays and King Lot. But in many versions, Mordred is actually the son of Morgays and Arthur. Morgays goes to Camelot or whatever, whether she's real young. Arthur doesn't know who she is. She doesn't know who he is. They sleep together. She has Mordred. Hmm. In some cases, Morgan Le Fay sets that up and makes sure they don't know who they are. In other cases, maybe it's less clear, or maybe one of them did kind of know, or whatever. But anyway. Okay. Um, so, <laughs> um, yeah. So, so 
this is not necessarily seen as Morgay's or Arthur's fault. But Mordred certainly is usually seen as a villain. Yeah. For a lot of reasons. But one of them being that in the end, he brings down... Yeah, in the end, he brings down the throne. Right? Now, as I said, in some cases, he's actually seen as having been the legit son of King Lot, which means that he's kind of overthrowing Arthur. In the case, but even when he's Arthur's son, he's still a villain, right? He's overthrowing mm-hmm. his dad's kingdom to take it over. I mean, it's still a coup, even if you're related. Right. Even if the throne is maybe yours, right? <laughs> like, you don't get to yeah. kill your dad to get it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so, Morgays, as the queen of Orkney with Lot, has a lot of kids. Gawain is one of them. Mordred is one of them. Okay. These are the keys. Um, she, Lot dies eventually. Uh, he's killed, I think, actually by King Pelinor, who's another part of this whole legend. Um, so then everyone's real mad at King Pelinor. Um, you know, and they want to avenge their dad, all the sons, except maybe Mordred. We're going to leave kind of Mordred out of this. Anyway, so all the sons want to kind of avenge their dad. Um, Morgays eventually falls in love with one of the knights, maybe actually one of the sons of Pelinor. And is found sleeping with him, the the son or the knight of, you know, the guy mm-hmm. who killed their dad. And one of the sons kills her, but lets Ooh. the guy go. Yeah. Yeah, double and, standard. Yep. Yes, 100%. Um, now, in some versions, Gawain's kind of annoyed that he let the guy live. But there's not a suggestion that any of the brothers are super pissed about killing their mom. Which Ooh. is seen as a fault, presumably, on their part. Which is to say that Morgays okay. isn't necessarily seen as being at fault. However, in the more modern era, as you move into, like, the 17, 18, 1900s, then the view maybe starts to change. Where mm-hmm. she is potentially seen as having been kind of a villain, like her sister Morgan. Um, and she is kind of seen then as sleeping around on her... I mean, her husband's died, you know? And yes, mm-hmm. he got killed by this guy, and she sort of falls in love with the wrong side, but we all love Romeo and Juliet. I mean, these things happen, right? Um, and they happen all the time in Arthurian stories. But, um, but you know, yes, then the double standard really comes into play, and people are like, yes, they should have killed her, and they should have killed the guy, too, probably. And um, So she starts to be maybe seen as more of a villain later. Okay. Um, but arguably, she's not necessarily seen as one in the Middle Ages, which is to say Morgan Le Fay is one thing, but her sisters are... Not necessarily evil. Okay. Morgays is not necessarily evil. She's pretty much happily married to the King of Orkney. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. And, uh, you know, there's, there's some exceptions, but Mordred isn't necessarily on purpose if she, if he is in fact Arthur's son. Um, so, all right. So that's, so that's Gowing's background. Okay. Is that he is Arthur's nephew by a half-sister. He is Morgan Le Fay's nephew as well. Uh, which we actually do find out in this poem, so we know that the poem agrees with all that. Mordred is not, I think, mentioned in the poem, but we obviously get a sense of the at the end of the poem that Morgan Le Fay is already starting to think of ways to kind of test Arthur's court, mm-hmm. right? And she's sort of looking for what's going to do it, and that she's actually sort of already settled on the kids of her sister. <laughs> yeah. Gawain comes through sort of with more or less flying colors almost. Um, but, you know, eventually she's going to get to one of the kids that won't. Right. <laughs> and in the meantime, you know, yeah. <laughs> Should we give a summary of the poem first? Yes. 
I guess I should say, usually I'd say spoiler alert, but this did come right. out in like the 14th century. So right. if you yeah. haven't read it right, by so now. Yeah. So here's a quick, quick rundown. Yeah. Christmas time, big parties. Of course, Arthur's court is partying. Um, a knight shows up all in green, um, kind of like a, a Groot, looking mm-hmm. kind of like Groot. If we've a watched any of the Guardians of the Galaxy. Yes, Treebeard. Yeah. Yes. Treebeard, of course, is fairly Tolkien. accurate for what yeah. we're going for here. Yeah. Tolkien was famously medievalist. Yes. Um, so he looks like a big, giant tree person, mm-hmm. basically. So he is the Green Knight, right? That is, he is the title along with Gawain. He shows up at Arthur's court. And he's like, I've heard this is an amazing court and everyone's the best. So I challenge you to a fun game, right? We play Christmas games. Let's have a fun game. Someone here will strike me a blow with this axe, and then in a year, I get to return the favor. <laughs> um, and Arthur's gonna do it, but Gawain stands up, mm-hmm. he's sitting, he's sitting, he's seated next to Arthur, or next to Guinevere, or whatever he says, and he's like, no, no, uncle, let me do it. I got this, right? Um, you know, I mean, they're all there, all the knights, so, but Gawain's the one who stands up, right? Because he's kind of the flower, at least as long as Lancelot's kind of doing something else. Um, so he takes the axe, the knight stretches out his neck, Gawain cuts his head off. Before it even hits the ground, the knight grabs his head, stands up, takes the axe. Uh, he's like, that's great. Uh, a year from now, on New Year's, meet me at the Green Chapel. If you look long enough, you'll find it. Uh-huh. <laughs> Good day to everybody. Okay. Right? And he heads yeah. off. Um, Creepy. And everyone's like, okay, what the frick? Yeah. Yeah. So Gawain has a year. So he, you know, spends the next year hanging out, doing nightly things, having fun. Um, we get to the end of September. He's starting to think about how he's going to have to leave soon. But he doesn't actually leave till All Hallows, which is November 1st. He goes to mm-hmm. Mass, right? We talked about Christianity and chivalry. It's a big part, right? So he goes to Mass on All Hallows and then takes his leave of everybody. Um, so he starts off on November 1st. And he travels through the kingdom, and he's just traveling, traveling. He's north, north, north. Um, traveling, traveling, traveling. And he asks people, have you seen the Green Chapel? And none of them have. And now the way, he fights, like, robbers and wolves and giants. Um, and we're told he probably would have died a lot of times, except that he's an amazing knight. And he's sleeping out in the cold, and he's only got his horse. Anyway. And at Christmas, he really wants to find somewhere to hear mass, but he's just been in the wilderness forever. And he suddenly comes across this huge castle... Gorgeous, giant moat, all this stuff. And he's like, hey, let me in. And they're like, oh, absolutely, welcome. We're happy to have you. So he mm-hmm. spends Christmas there. He hangs out. He has a good time. There are tons of guests. Um, it's a few days after Christmas. He's like, all right, I got to go. Um, and they're like, where are you going? And he said, well, I have to find the Green Chapel. And they're like, oh, it's only two miles away. Stay till New Year's and we'll show you where it is. <laughs> he's like, okay. Um, so... The knight of the castle, they've been getting along super well. Um, and he's also been getting along super well with all the ladies in the castle, not sleeping around. He's a chivalrous knight. Um, but there's the, the lord's wife, who's this beautiful young woman, maybe more beautiful than Guinevere, who is, of course, Arthur's queen. Um, and then this very impressive older woman. He doesn't know who it is. All right. Um, and the knight says, you know, I go out hunting a lot. I'm going to go out hunting. Anything I get in the forest, I'll give to you. Anything you get in the castle, you give to me. Mm-hmm. All right. So the first day he's there, um, the Lord's wife shows up in his bedroom while he's asleep, wakes him up, 
basically comes on to him for a long time. They have a great conversation. At the end, he she gives him a kiss. All right, so the end of that day, <laughs> um, the knight has got a lot of deer. He gives Gawain all the deer. Gawain gives him a kiss. Um, the second day, the knight gets a boar that is a big pig, a wild boar. Right, not that yeah. he's boring. Okay, um, so he gets a boar in the forest, um, and the same thing happens with his wife in the castle, um, and Gawain this time gets two kisses and gives them to the knight. He doesn't tell the knight where he got them. <laughs> He's like, that wasn't part of the bargain. Right. All right. In the theory, final this is night, like a big organization where there's m- a number of women that... Yeah. Oh, there's people. tons of people everywhere. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, this is a huge working castle. So, yeah, there's a lot of people in this castle. Um, all right, the final day. Now he's getting a little nervous, right? He's still sleeping in, but not quite as well as he used to be. Because um, now we're only a day away from him having to go get his head chopped off. Um, and, again, right, the Lord's wife wakes him up. And they have a great conversation. And she's like, you know, basically any other one else would have slept with me by now. What's wrong with you? And he's like, you know, I really can't. I got some stuff on my mind. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and she's like, well, take this ring. And he's like, no, no, I can't possibly take this ring. And she's like, well, you're insulting me. But in that case, take this girdle. Um, if it'll protect you from any harm, no matter what happens to you, it will protect you from all harm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he's like, okay, if you insist, why not? So he takes the girdle. Um, and that day, the knight comes back with a fox um and gawain gives him three kisses which of course is a big old lie right (laughs) he does not give back the girdle um all right the next day he leaves early they've sent they've given him a guy to show him where the a guide to show him where the castle or the chapel is Mm -hmm. the green chapel um the guy leads him there and he's like are you sure you want to do this because this guy will kill you you don't know you know you couldn't pay me enough to go there and Gowan's like, well, thanks a lot, but I have to go. So he does, and the other the other guy skedaddles. Um, and he shows up, and it's like this weird, sort of broken down, the moss is eaten away, he can't even tell it used to be a chapel. And he's like, oh my gosh, this is like some scary pagan stuff here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then, you know, the knight's like, hey, you came! He, like, hears him from somewhere, and he comes hopping down over the moss or whatever. And Gowan's like, yeah, you know, I keep my promises. This is Arthur's court we're talking about. Um... And the knight's like, all right. So Gawain kneels down. The knight raises his axe. He starts to let it fall. And Gawain flinches. And the knight's like, okay. And Gawain's like, nope, I got it. I got it. So the next time the knight swings and Gawain's like a rock. He doesn't move. And the knight's like, okay, this time I'm really going to do it. So he, the third, the third time, um, he draws a little bit of blood. So he does scratch him, he cuts him in the neck, he draws some blood, and Gowie leaps to his feet and pulls a sword. It's like, that's it! You hit me, that's it, you don't get another try. Mm. <laughs> and the knight's like, no, 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 That this was totally, you know, this is what happened. The first time I didn't hit you, not because you flinched, but because you gave me back everything you got in the castle, which was a kiss from my wife. The second blow, I didn't hit you, because again, you gave me back everything you got, two kisses from my wife. The third time, the reason I drew blood was because I'm pretty sure she gave you the girdle that you wove for me. Uh-huh. But that's okay. You know, you thought it would protect your life. And I understand that. Everyone loves his life. Mm-hmm. And then Gowing is super ashamed. 
And he takes it off and he like throws it back to the knight and he's like, all right, I failed. And the knight's like, no, you didn't fail. It's fine. It's fine. He's like, no, this can never be undone. (laughs) Um, And the knight's like, come back to my castle, you know, and I'll make your peace Mm -hmm. with my wife who really does not like you. And, um, you know, and I'll introduce you to your aunt whom you didn't recognize. But that older woman was Morgan Le Fay and she's the one who set this whole thing up. Right. Is she involved uh, with the disguising the lord as Yes, knight? presumably. Presumably. Yeah. yeah. And giving him enough magic that he can get his head chopped off and all that, yes. Um, yeah, so then Gawain is like, nope, <laughs> I'm going home. I failed. That's it. Uh, and so he rides home and he tells everyone at home what he did and how he failed. And they're like, no, you didn't fail. Everyone, you know, it's totally understandable. You did everything that mm-hmm. would be expected of a knight. Um, but he's like, I'll always wear this girdle tied around to my arm to remind me that I can never fully repair my reputation. And they're like, well, we'll all wear girdles exactly like it because we honor you and we, you know, we don't want to be pretend that we're better than you are. Okay. Um, all right. So that's the, that's the original story. Yeah. And yeah, we get all the virtues in there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Pa- patience. Patience and purity. And <laughs> yep. Um. All the stuff. Deer hunting. Yeah. I forget what other Christian virtues there are. Right. <laughs> Temperance, probably. Yeah. I'm just noticing now yeah. as I list these off how many of these he the opposites are demonstrated in the movie The Green Knight. So yes. we should probably talk about that. Yes. Uh we should say like prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance are generally seen as sort of the, the big old ones. Okay. Um and arguably he he does get he does get them all, you know. Okay. Humility, of course, is a big one. <laughs> you know, yeah. he's, he's pretty good with that. Um, he did want to save his life, but like, what can you do? Right. right. Um, but yeah. Okay. So yes, the movie. I've tentatively divided it into like four parts, which is yes. um, Welcome to Medieval Town, where you have like this sort <laughs> yes. of introduction to like we're having a period movie here you see like a house with burning thatch is our opening shot which is somehow also nobody seems to care that much that the house is on fire so yeah i think we're trying to say that this is a time where people are very hard and nobody is very nice yes monty python always said that their idea that the stereotype of the middle ages is mud yeah. So that's why, like, the peasants literally, like, piling mud on top of mud. <laughs> yes. Right? <laughs> this is yeah. the big stereotype of the Middle Ages. Yeah. Yeah, so they yeah. definitely sort of lean into that. And uh, yes. so, right, so Gawain oh um, is basically the only character in the film who really gets a name, I think, other than, like, we see him with this this prostitute that he likes essel and almost everybody yeah, else is like the okay. king or the lady or the green knight right. and his mother is just mother right i think so is arthur not named we obviously know he's arthur right i don't we know I his wife he's, is guinevere yeah i think they're only called king and queen king and queen yeah, yeah. which and is weird i will point out yeah his it is. It's a because of course we know who they are. So why not? Mm-hmm. They're symbolic, but of mm-hmm. course they're symbolic. Arthur is already symbolic, right? 
I mean, <laughs> and Arthur, the, the funnier thing to me is that Arthur isn't so much symbolic as a, of a king mm-hmm. as he is of a man who's trying to sort of live in what the Middle Ages would have said, a man trying to live as Christ, mm-hmm. trying to be a good man and a good leader in the world. Right. And his knights are sort of the apostles um, and how it's impossible ultimately for mortal man to live up to that. Right. Mm-hmm. That's really what Arthur is about. Um, so, yes, he is a king, but in the same way that Christ is a king. I mean, it, it's literal for Arthur, but yeah. it's also more of a metaphor. Whereas in the movie, there was a lot of metaphor in the movie, but the mm-hmm. king wasn't one of them, I don't think. Yeah. He's, you know, he seems like he's pretty much just a king. A king. Right. Yeah. He's, he seems he like a nice guy. He, he did seem like a nice guy. Yeah. He, it's like, it's hard. He's old, right? So it would be hard to imagine yes. him, um, actually fighting the Green Knight. And, right. He's, you know, the only actor on screen who they're passing a sword back and forth. And he's the one who's like acting like it's heavy. Right. Um, yes. Which, yeah. You know, and it, yeah. it, it was, he was a, good character i enjoyed but um it felt like in a movie full of like really strong characters he and and the queen were kind of bleached out i don't know yes they're sort of negligible yeah yeah Yeah. but so ways that are weird because of course they're both so important otherwise like (laughs) to the story generally yeah so we move through this first section where we get prostitutes you know doing their stuff Gawain goes to church and then he goes to the Christmas party. And at the same time, we see like his mom, who apparently is in this case Morgane Le Fay, potentially. Yes. His mom is clearly, yeah. whether or not she's actually supposed to be Morgan, I sort of had some questions about this. Mm-hmm. She's, but clearly in this case, his mom has those powers. Yeah. And she's the one who sets it up. Now, when he gets to the castle, Arguably, there the knight's wife is kind of also on the other end of it. Mm-hmm. So I was like, maybe, maybe his mom is still right. Morgay's, and Morgan is kind of both the knight's wife and the witch at the castle. I don't know. Oh uh, yes, the, it, nothing the... was necessarily supposed to be quite that clear. <laughs> yes, but um, but the ritual that they do is really pretty interesting. And there's some implication that somehow they're causing Gawain to, like, volunteer to do the, to do the head chopping off game. Yes. So what we see is something really interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, We see his mom, who's, I'm going to continue to call her Morgaze because I'm going to put Morgan at the castle. But, but yeah, but clearly they all have the same powers in this one. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and she does not seem to be the wife of Orkney at all. I mean, she just seems to be Gawain's mom, which also leaves, she doesn't necessarily even seem to have other kids, let right. alone Mordred. And in this case, the king super knows who his mom is, so he definitely hasn't slept with her. So mm-hmm. who knows? Anyway, <laughs> I mean, at least as far as we can tell. Right. Um, and his dad doesn't seem to be in the picture at all. No. So no Orkney the there. So yeah. who is to say? Maybe in this one... Well, I don't know. Maybe, or, or who knows where Orkney is in this case? Who cares? Mm-hmm. Anyway, <laughs> it's far away. Um, but she writes like a letter of instruction, kind of. And then mm-hmm. there's this ritual, and they kind of burn it, and it disappears into the air, and it clearly summons the knight, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, she clearly sets it up at her end. I think we should mention the other big spoiler is that she gives Gawain the girdle. 
Yes. He loses it on his journey, and he gets it back from the knight's mm-hmm. wife at the castle. Yeah. So that's why I said that connection between her and the knight's wife is sort of mm-hmm. very clear. In this case... That's, again, what I said, that Morgays has tended to be made more of a villain in the modern era. Yeah. She's not necessarily responsible for her sister's crimes or related to her sister's villainy, even though they are related mm-hmm. technically, right, um, in the Middle Ages. But um, in this one, they seem very, very much allied. Yeah. Right? So it wouldn't be surprising to find out that the wife is Morgan. Although we really hope that she's not related to Gawain, because <laughs> yeah, there's less chastity in the movie. Yes, let's yes. just say. We'll so get to that. we hope he's not. Okay. But maybe he's sleeping with his aunt. And that's how we're going to get Mordred. Who knows? Yeah. Anyway, okay, but yeah. So, so keep, keep going. Keep going. Right. So he cuts off the knight's head. Very impressive effects. Um, yes. And oh, then... and we should also say he clearly wasn't supposed to, because Arthur is like, you can give him a blow anywhere. But then he cuts off yeah. his head. But the movie leads us to suggest that he could have chosen to like just cut off his hand, right? And which there's is something not about what the poem suggests the yeah the knight will get to like return the blow whatever blow you gave him, right? So that it's yeah. possible that he is risking getting his head cut off because he did this, right? Um, so a year later. People are you know really excited because there's been a lot yes. of talking about him. Yes, and, and a puppet show about it. Yes, a puppet show. Very we see like, a punch and show Judy sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Which is very yes. exciting. I was like, that is probably yeah. the most medieval they did exist. part of this. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Um <laughs> But also like I want to call out that like this this whole section of the film, which is probably like the first thirty five or forty minutes, is very much like the induction phase of Joseph Campbell's um hero's journey. Where you have, yes. like, a call to adventure, which is sometimes yep. refused, and somebody yep. supernatural help often, or a mentor. Yep. Um, all of the women give him things to take with him. Um, yeah. You know, some of them are somewhat magical, like the girdle, and some of them, like, Essel gives him a bell. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it's more of a sentimental token, I guess. Um, yeah. Knight taking a thing from his lady potentially, but he's also like very symbolically like an anti-knight. He even tells people, "I'm not a knight" or "I'm not a knight yet." Yeah. And then he yeah. just sort of rides out into the heath, and yep. you find out that this town that he's been living in is the only town in all of England. Yes, because he just <laughs> rides and rides and rides, and there's nothing and nobody. <laughs> yep, until just forest. He, yeah, until he meets. Like a single highwayman who is like fourteen More years of a kid. old, right. yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> and this guy and his two sisters yes. get the jump on our extremely yep. highly trained knight. And then yes. there's like he's tied up on the ground, and there's this really Can really I just long quick that I did have a bit of an issue with the fact that our Gawain in this is clearly not the Gawain in the original is a hero. Mm-hmm. This, this guy is not. Is no, not. not even a little bit. But he's also, he's kind of a squire who's in training, but like mm-hmm. not even, eh, yeah, he's yeah. not, it's he's unclear. He's in it to get girls, I think. Yeah, I mean, I guess we're supposed to be making a man of him over the course of the story is the point, but. Yeah, mm, yeah. 
Anyway, but, but yes, continue yeah, on. So, so yeah, they tie him he's up. He's tied up on the ground, and for some reason, the 14-year-old gets up on the horse and, like, rides away. And his friends, yep. like, chase after him, like, where are you going, bro? And there's this amazing, like, Kubrickian pan, where it just, like, pans forever, you know? And then yes. you see him, like, this moment of, like, maybe if he didn't get up and he just died there and his corpse is still there, like, 100 years later... And then right. it spins back around, and then we're into part two of the film, which I've tentatively titled Pink Floyd Concept Album. Yes. Because yeah, this is so where we get it gets our weird. First, right. I was going to say, but in that moment, we get our first sort of commentary on, you know, he's apparently, this is a Gawain who's just been going through his life doing mm-hmm. the motions. Yeah. And this is the first time he has to consciously make a decision to freaking do something. Yeah. Right. He can do nothing and die, or he can cut himself loose. And luckily right. for the movie, he does choose to cut himself <laughs> yeah, loose. Yeah, I was like, oh, this would be a so, <laughs> very short movie otherwise. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah, so continue on. Yes, into our Pink yeah, Floyd concept album. So, yeah, hero. so he, yeah. like, they had left his sword on the ground. He doesn't bring the sword with him, it doesn't look like, which seems like a mistake to me, but, you know, whatever. Uh, he winds up in a sort of think, abandoned yeah. house. And yep. this is where this section, I think the, the titles on the screen are um, a visit with St. Winifred or a meeting with St. Winifred. Yep. Yes. So this is called the interpolation, which is yes. to say this is not the original story, obviously. Right. This was Saint added Winifred. for benefit of. Yeah. <laughs> she was a Welsh yeah. saint who. Yep. Had her head cut off and restored yes. by a different guy yep. who's also a saint. And that's not yep. like the major part of her story. Like the reason she's a saint is not necessarily just that she had her head restored by somebody else. Right. Uh, she's a saint because she, she did a lot of good stuff. And stuff. Right. Yeah. Right. But she is also the paint patron saint who protects against unwanted sexual advances. Yeah. Among other things. She also is like the patron saint of a place where you can get water and it's like Lourdes, but it's in Wales. So, um, yeah, it's a spring yeah. that supposedly her head had fallen into. Um, and we should point out, right. It's her, her suitor euphemistically mm-hmm. called when she refuses him because she wants to remain a virgin. Uh, he cuts her head off. Right. Yeah. So in and the movie, so this, yeah, she's all ghosty. It's great. Yes. Um, there's one shot where she, like, really dollies forward toward him in, like, a very not-being-a-person sort of way. Yeah, um, horror movie Kind of super creepy, yeah. But then later <laughs> on, she obviously has legs, which I was a little bit disappointed about. But um, she asks him to dive down into this lake to get her head. And he does it. Which, given everything we've seen him do so far, is, like, this is the first actual heroic thing that he does and when he comes out there's this fox and um i was torn if like is the fox just a helper is the fox also saint winifred in some way is the fox something else the fox becomes a huge character in this film i think the fox I think once he leaves the town, everything else in the movie is driven by the Green Knight. Mm-hmm. And or his mom and his aunt. But 
the magic of the Green Knight. So him getting waylaid by the kids. Mm-hmm. The fact that one of them suddenly decides to jump on the horse and ride it away. Um, the fact that Winifred shows up to him, that he even stops at her house. Uh, the, the fox itself, right? We know, of course, the Green Knight is closely tied to animals in the woods. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's all the magic of the Green Knight, right? Leading our hero very specifically down this path. Mm-hmm. And we have reason to think that some of that is true because, like, the horse will show up again. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's that was my take. But that is obviously mm-hmm. a specific interpretation of this movie. Yeah. So the interesting thing is that he goes back to sleep. He has, like, one final interaction where Winifred thanks him for getting her head. And yep. when he wakes up, he gets the axe back. I feel like there's something about losing all the tokens you were given in the Joseph Campbell um, hero's journey thing because ultimately, like, the power of change, it doesn't come from the helpers. It comes from something inside you. So he, like, he's lost all of the different little things, but then he gets this axe back. Um, mm-hmm. So then we see, like, a very long montage of of him and the fox walking across, I guess, like, maybe the Scottish Highlands or someplace. He eats yep. mushrooms, and he kind of trips balls for a while. <laughs> um, <laughs> we do he get, yeah. sees these giant, bald, singing women... Um, yeah, well, we get we do get the giants. I assume yeah. that those were the giants. He doesn't fight any; they're they're friendlyish. Yeah, he sort of asks them for a ride, and then he freaks yeah. out, and the fox sings to them, which is cool. And then they arrive at the hall, um, and that's sort of like the the third part starts, which the yes, his, it's like death and rebirth. It's really like exhaustion and then yeah. rebirth. Um, yeah. And this is a castle, unlike a working castle, this is like drawing room drama type of thing, because there's like four people living there, right? Yes, it was a little weird. Cause but they another have, reason why yeah. it's so clearly fake, and so, like it's so clearly set up in some mm-hmm. ways, just like his whole journey, we kind of assume has been a setup. Yeah. Right? All the obstacles and all the helpers and right, everything seems to have been a setup, including all of mm-hmm. this castle, which of course the castle is kind of a setup in the original, but it's also an actual working right. castle. A, yeah. <laughs> like, um, he's a real dude. It's just, yeah, we got Morgan Le Fay's magic doing some stuff, but like, uh, yeah, the, the sense of it being a setup was much, much stronger throughout this movie. Mm-hmm. I would say. So that, yeah, so that you've got the, the Lord and the lady and they don't really have names given. And this creepy <laughs> woman with, bandages over her eyes like in um i think it's the david bowie music video for black star anyway um so maybe that's never yeah it's never explained what's going Mm. on with her she appears very quickly in one scene in a like creepy horror movie manner yeah and this was a weird you know like they've got the the lady is played by the same actress who played the prostitute that he was hanging out with, I guess. Yes. <laughs> I'm going to say in part one. Um, yeah. 
And she's like super sophisticated and she reads and writes and she makes a photograph of him with technology mm-hmm. that is, I'm going to say, a little bit of an an- anachronism. <laughs> and then, yeah. Um, yep. And they've kind of given up on medieval dress by this point. Um, but I promised myself I wasn't going to spend a lot of time talking about the clothes because there's a lot. There's just somebody else can do that um, response. (laughs) And then, so yeah, so she does, they make a deal with, um, he and the lords sort of make a deal that, as in in the poem, he'll, Gawain will give the lord whatever he gets during the day in exchange for the lord's hunting. And the first yep. day he brings an elk. I think that's before they make the deal. And the second day, um, he's like just running through the woods trying to leave. And the we yeah. see that he's shot like a, a something. I forget what it actually was because there's other stuff going on in the scene. Yeah. Um, there might have been a boar in yeah. this one. And then he does not kill the fox in the last no. day in case we're, listeners yeah. are worried. I wrote down in my notes, thank you for not killing the fox. Right. Because like I said, I think he he kind of is the fox or, you know, like, so it's a little bit different in this one. Yeah. Yeah. So the lady, the lady of the house comes on to him and he keeps sort of like pushing her away. And then eventually she comes into his room with the girdle and she's like, or sash, I guess. And she's like, do you want this? And he's like, yeah. And... Then she's, like, you know, getting up on him, and she's like, come on, tell me how much you want it. Say it louder. Yep. Like, oh, my God. Um, it's it's a graphic. Yeah, it is. She gives lot. him a hand job. Yeah. And we see more than we probably needed to. Yeah. I'm I think it's way to say, Yeah, I will say that <laughs> maybe I have a very yeah. sheltered films that I watch. I don't think I've ever really seen semen depicted in a film before. Yeah. I have, but I don't know if I've ever seen it where it was necessary. I have yeah. to think about this. Um, definitely in this moment, it's it's not. Yeah, It's obviously a huge departure from the tale, where the whole point is chastity mm-hmm. and all the rest of it. Um, but more the but what actually bothered me about it, I don't care about any of that, whatever. I mean, but mm-hmm. what actually bothered me about that one was that um, because we know he's supposed to give the Lord whatever he, right? And there's this weird moment that to me read is very homophobic. Mm-hmm, right. Which is a huge disservice to the original and to the Middle Ages. Of course, they could be homophobic, but they weren't automatically. And why would you put that in now where it doesn't belong? Right. right? In the Middle Ages, for him to kiss a Lord is fine. That's 100%. Men did all sorts of things together, including definitely what we see happen in the movie between him and the wife. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's this weird moment where, like, he sort of leans into the Lord, and then he's kind of like, no. Um, and, yeah, it's this yeah. weird, just clearly kind of homophobic moment where the audience is like, is he going to give the Lord <laughs> the hand job he got in the castle? No, we're going to be homophobic and weird about it. Yeah. That was messed great. up. I don't know what that was about. That was messed up. And that is yeah. not the fault of the Middle Ages. I just want to be clear, that was very, very modern. Mm-hmm. Very modern. Yeah, that's that's all. I, that's what I want to say about that. All right. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, just so the that tone, was the um, The tone of the way that Gawain sort of entered that moment, it just didn't yeah. feel like it meshed with the character at all for me either. No, 
No. Um, who up to that point, he's been very like, ah, oh, whatever. Okay. Sort of about right. things. Um, yeah. but yeah, as he's running away from this household where he's like, you are all crazy and I don't want anything to do with you anymore. Um, <laughs> we begin the yep. fourth part, which I think I'm going to call like the final temptation of Christ. Because, yeah, he... That's medieval. He gets in a boat. Um, He has this very Lord of the Rings-esque boating sequence. Yes. And meets up with the the Green Knight, who is totally a tree in his spare time, apparently. Yep. Um, The guy has an uh, axe, and he's gonna, you know, they do the first shot, he flinches. The second shot, he's still, like trying to steady himself. And then we see like the third shot and Gawain like runs away and gets on his yeah. horse and apparently like just rides all the way back to Camelot really the fast. Horse, the also horse, the horse the being there tells us, yeah, yeah, it tells us that the knight was kind of in on all that other stuff we saw. Right. Right. So now he's been given this kind of choice. He has a choice to leave if he wants to. And he, in, in mm-hmm. this shot, we see him ostensibly take it. Yes, run. He suddenly rides fast back to Camelot. Yeah. Yeah, and then, then we what? see, like, this vision of what his life could be like. Uh, mm-hmm. Which is, like, not great. Not great. Honestly, he's not, not great. a great person. No. He's not like, a great he, person. Yeah. Nope. He knocks up Essel, and then he takes the baby. Yep, like, but not even, her. like, letting the baby, like, grow you know, he takes a newborn away from its mother, yeah. which I was yep. like, well, how are you going to feed it, dude? Like, right. Come also, on. not not medieval. He didn't oh, do that kind of stuff. Right. Just saying. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, you take a baby to a woman to be breastfed if right. necessary. You sure. can take him away. <laughs> but yeah, anyway. Right. <laughs> okay. I, uh, I had a lot of formula, feelings really. about that scene. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> anyway. Yes. Which you're um, supposed to, to be fair. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. Yeah, and he um, marries another woman and I guess has other children with her and they're sort of having yeah. wars and he's always yeah, really we see angry. him become king, obviously. Yeah. Instead of Arthur. I mean, he... Yeah, know, he gets Arthur crowned dies, king. He gets um, crowned, yeah. His yeah, we son get wars. dies in battle and he's very upset and then the castle sort of crumbles around him and eventually he... He's not taken off the sash this whole time, and he takes off the sash, and his head falls off. Yep. Pop. And then he opens his eyes, and lo, it was all a dream, and he takes off the sash, and he says, okay, hit me. And the knight says, like, good. And fade to black. Yep. And that's where we are. Yep. And then we get credits, and then we get an end scene. Yes. Before we get to the end scene... I want to say that the entire time we were getting the flash forward ostensibly of his potential life, I was thinking in my head, at the end of this, we have to go back to the wood and see that he doesn't make this choice, mm-hmm. right? Because that's the only thing that makes the movie make sense at this point and ties it again to yeah. the original story, which is that we see he's finally learned what the right choice is, mm-hmm. right? In the original poem, Gawain can wear the sash because he's already a hero, Right. And what we get is that one moment of fear or tarnishing that makes him human. But for our Gawain in this movie, he is not a hero. <laughs> so we need to see him become one. Right. Yeah. And the idea is, of course, if he remains a coward and runs, that he will be a terrible father, a terrible husband, mm-hmm. a terrible lover, a terrible king. 
right. and he'll bring down his country, right? Very much as Mordred mm-hmm. would, right? Who is his brother, right? Except in this movie, he doesn't seem to have one. So yeah, is his mom Morgan? No. Are they the same person? Is Morgan the old woman in the castle? Is she the wife? Who knows? But um, yeah, so he, the fact that he doesn't do that tells us that he has grown. Mm-hmm. And that maybe he will become the Gowing, who, of course, the, the poem is actually about. Um, yeah, so at the end of the credits, we get our one, our end scene, our sort of Easter egg scene. Right, where a girl, a young, young girl, like, just sort of yeah. scoots over and, like, picks the crown up off the ground and puts it on. Yes. So we don't know anything about her, but there we go. Yeah. And I think the assumption is supposed to be, this is just my feeling, that having learned his lesson, he goes home, marries the prostitute, they have a daughter, mm-hmm. which is how we know that he didn't do what he would do in the first one, because that right. one was a son. Right. Right, where he just wants his son, he just takes her. So if he has mm-hmm. a daughter, the assumption is, A, if he were like he was in the first one and she'd had a daughter, he wouldn't have cared and would have left the daughter with the mom. Right. So they must have actually gotten married and he had a daughter. <laughs> yeah. But he also got to be king, but clearly a better king. He doesn't go wearing his crown and strutting his authority everywhere. His daughter can play with the crown. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I sort of glossed over Essel at the beginning, but she really is, yeah. I think, a super important character because she gives him the chance to demonstrate what a freaking coward he is yeah. right at the beginning. It's when Kander, she's like, right, Yeah, she's like, do you love me? And he doesn't say anything. Right. And at the time, yeah. like the first time I watched the film, I was like, well, he maybe he doesn't. And like now that I'm thinking about it, it's obvious that he does, but he's too chicken to like go tell his mom and the king that he's yep. in love with this prostitute. Yes. So. Yeah. Yeah. So yep. she's a big deal. But after having done all of this, that he can say it. Yes, yeah. presumably. But you're right. Also, she, even she is kind of clearly a setup because mm-hmm. Alicia Vikander is, like I said, the sort of, yeah, she's the sort of same actress. Yeah. Um, and you also have, I mean, it's very specifically cast in certain ways. Um, she's definitely one of them, obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. The, the interesting thing about this, I just want to say, like, medievalists, before I saw it, Medievalists on the whole really liked it, or at least mm-hmm. some did. Probably ones who didn't didn't say anything, because you don't want to be, <laughs> you know, you want people to like it, right? right? Um, I did think they sort of shot at the moon, and it slightly exceeded their grasp, perhaps, right? They're sort of shooting at the seventh seal. It's, mm-hmm. it's definitely not that. There's a um, lot of symbolic stuff that we've sort of passed over in, in uh, summarizing this. There's a lot of use yes. of color in different scenes. That I'm sure yes. somebody's going to write at least a uh, undergraduate honors thesis on. Yeah, um, I do think it's gorgeous. Yeah, oh, I mean it's, it's beautifully shot. It's, it's so detailed. There is like these great, like he has this um, red quilted cloak that he wears that's been quilted yeah. to look kind of like a wood grain pattern. Like things have been thought about really hard. In a lot mm-hmm. of really cool ways. Yeah. Yeah. But I also think it's it's interesting because, of course, the question always is, you the, the need supposedly to modernize these stories to make them make sense. Mm-hmm. Right. And um, 
in some ways, this isn't a story that really needs modernizing because the whole point is fear of death. Right. But that's not what this movie is about. This movie is not about the fear of death. This movie is sort of about the fear of growing up or coming mm-hmm. into your own or what does it take to make a hero or to make a man or whatever. Right. That's not what the original poem is about. Um, and in some ways, I, the weird thing is, obviously they did not know they would be releasing it during a pandemic. Mm-hmm. But I think the original meaning is more meaningful right now. Yeah. I mean, we're in the midst of the fear of death. Like, we're actually in a plague. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, you know, the seventh seal is, like, very pertinent at the moment. Um, and so it's weird that what you get instead is something that you might think of as more modern. It does follow this Joseph Campbell sort of hero's journey in a mm-hmm. way that... Um, now, I also actually want to give a shout out to Loki, which is the Marvel TV series, which also follows the hero's journey, arguably much more successfully. I mean, if you want to mm-hmm. do a sort of good modern tale of, of a hero's journey. Um, because the problem sort of with this going is that arguably, I'm not sure we care. Mm-hmm. Right? The only reason we keep watching is because it's a gorgeous film. But I'm not sure we super care until the very end. Maybe we're glad he earned his ending. Yeah. But I don't know that we're invested. And that is sort of a problem because this is the whole point of these stories. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the reason they still resonate with us is these are characters we care about. We care that Lancelot and Guinevere sleep together, right? And betray their husband and their king, right? We care about Morgan and the way she sort of brings down her brother Arthur. We care about what Mordred does to Arthur and the fact that Arthur and his half sister apparently sleep mm-hmm. together. And, um, these are all things we do care about. They're the same things that messy dramas are made of today. <laughs> right? It's, yeah. Like, I mean, um, and. Mm-hmm. Yeah, from a writery point of view, um, I just hit the table. Okay. From a writer point of view, I think that this is kind of a problem with having a lot of characters who don't have names. And instead, yes. they sort of function like symbols because yes. it's really hard to care about a symbol. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. I don't know, like, I felt like the, the the guy who played the Lord and the Green Knight was very yes. personable. Like, he's Joel a very... Edgerton. Yes. He's a good actor. Yeah. He's great. Um, and he did a lot. Like, I, I felt much more sympathetic toward the Lord in the scene where Gawain is like, don't touch me just because I liked him, like the way he was portraying it. But overall, like yeah. the only characters that you really sort of feel involved with are Essel and Winifred because right. they have much more defined characteristics. Yeah. I don't know. Give them a yeah, name. And Winifred, like- by the way, <laughs> I don't know. I just feel like it's the sort of thing that you get yelled at in a writing workshop where people are like, no, give us a name. Give us something right. to hang our hat on, you know? Yeah. Well, also, Winifred is played also by Aaron Kellyman, who was mm-hmm. also just in Falcon and Winter Soldier. Um, uh-huh. And yes, I think it's also, right, these are the actors. And so mm-hmm. they are recognizable people. We know them from other places. We They are very good as well. Mm-hmm. Um and the same is definitely true for Dev Patel. The problem is that, and honestly, it's sort of the problem that I have with things like Catcher in the Rye, 
of which mm-hmm. I'm just going to acknowledge on air. Um, I was never a giant fan of. Aimless men who don't know what they're doing with their lives aren't super fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. That's just a general thing, right? I mean, there are plenty of amazing tales like that, but is that really the best we can do? And why would you take Gawain, that is not actually a tale about that, right? and turn it into one? Mm-hmm. Even with Dev Patel, right? The fact that it's not a white guy at the center doesn't change the fact that it's still a kind of aimless dude who just doesn't know what to do with his life. But he's totally privileged. I mean, he is a knight, even if he doesn't right. want to be. Or he's got a lot of money. He doesn't want- yeah. I mean, he's the nephew yeah. of the king, right? He's, so he's yeah. still... He, you I know, mean, Essel implies yeah. that he's going to become king. Like, it's kind of a done deal. Yes. There's nobody else waiting in the wings. Right. So. right. Which also takes Mordred out of the picture, interestingly. Mm-hmm. But but instead, the film is kind of like Gawain could be Mordred and destroy the kingdom, or could be Gawain as we know him, which is ostensibly how it ends, yeah. right? And maintain the kingdom. Um. Yeah, it, it's this weird question. Um, and I don't know, like I said, I think sort of a movie about more of the fear of mortality, which I honestly thought we were going to get at first, right? As you yeah. said, the highway, the the little band the of like men. Yeah. tween highway people. <laughs> and um, then actually retrieving ahead, you know? Yes, it does seem to be about mortality. And yet... And in the Middle Ages, like, you know, spilling your seed is a kind of commentary, like, sex was sort of seen as a metaphor for death in some Mm -hmm. ways. And yet that isn't actually finally what the movie really has to Mm -hmm. say. Um, Yeah, and I think our next episode might be about sort of the place of women and the symbolism of the women and all the women characters and just what what they mean overall. Um, and in this movie, but then also we can move back into the larger Arthurian legend. Like, what, what is the role of women? Because this is the yeah. other issue that in this movie, which is not always true in Arthurian legend, um, and arguably isn't even really true in the original story. Um, the women are, f- but in the movie, that the women are kind of there to be motivators, mm-hmm. obstacles, parallels, lessons. Yeah. But there's something about not- motherhood going on in this movie, too. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But that otherwise, sort of, they're not important in and of themselves. Mm-hmm. Right? Which is maybe one of the interesting things about, for example, mm-hmm. the fact that the queen doesn't get a name. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah. It so- also is, I think, you know, part of the reason why um, St. Winifred... Right, I had sort of been like, "Oh, Wales, Arthur," but also there's something about um, sexual advances and women. It's like this very older view of of uh, women's sexuality, where it's like the man makes the advance, and then the woman has to either reject it or accept it. Right, and then you see that later flipped on its head with the with the lady sort of mm-hmm. making unwanted advances on um on uh Gawain but mm-hmm. yeah the whole thing is but also interesting there's something going on yeah. there well that Winifred right she rejects it she gets her head chopped off but she recovers mm-hmm. that's why she's a saint sort of um yeah Gawain could have done the same thing right right and arguably he finally does but he 
you know, so she is she is there as a lesson to him if he learned mm-hmm. it, which he didn't quite. <laughs> yeah. Um. Well. Yeah. They but tried. I do say, but it is gorgeously shot. Yeah. It's right, and it's it's just that there is this sense somehow that the movie, you know, if you're gonna do it, you gotta know what story you're telling and why you've changed it. Mm-hmm. Right, and I'm not sure the movie fully knew what they changed and why they changed it. Yeah, right. Um, which is. You know, it, it's interesting because obviously so many medieval stories do still get told and it very clearly, right? There's some very clear reasons why you s- still tell some of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there's a sort of weird sense, you know, and I was actually trying to think when I was watching it, um, if it had come out before the pandemic, um, were we in more of like a malaise? And we would have been like, mm-hmm. ah, yes. You know, the youth now are aimless and have not figured themselves out. I'm not sure that that was true, actually. But maybe mm-hmm. it wouldn't have been as out of place as arguably it is now. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm not sure. It's hard to remember back that far. Mm-hmm. But yeah. definitely the world in the past couple of years has changed. Yeah. it's It's been rough. <laughs> um but also, yeah. like, it's it's an interesting parallel because um, I don't know if we would call the world, like, more self-indulgent. I do feel like people grow up a lot more slowly than they did even when my parents were kids. Mm-hmm. So that the idea yeah. that you could be... Gawain looks like he's in his early 30s, maybe. He's got, mm-hmm. like, a beard and stuff you know he and that he can still be disaffected and figuring out what he wants to do with his life as opposed to in the original the real Gawain is like well I'm a knight and this is my thing and I'm gonna do knight stuff and however old he is you know like he's an adult in his civilization and like you don't get this sort of I hate to be that person, the sort of millennial like ambivalence about what does adulthood really mean, sort of well, thing. I think that isn't isn't true. I mean, as always, right? I think it isn't isn't true. Just because um, today, obviously, in certain ways, people have to grow up. People have always had to grow up for different reasons quickly, right? Mm-hmm. So whether it's um, you know because for the past couple decades, like you can't really get a job. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, just because, right. Um, or, you know, um, you have to grow quickly, not just because no one can really get a job that pays enough for you to afford like a house. Um, but also you have sort of a slew of people who like can't, you know, afford to go to college. Like it's literally too expensive. Even if you have a full-time job, you can't necessarily afford to go. Right. Um, or, Right, so there can be reasons of class or race or, mm-hmm. of course, nationality, depending on where you live, that can be reasons why people grow up very quickly. Um, and this has sort of always been true, right? There have always been people who've been able to be disaffected and always been people who sort of can't be, because you just can't afford to that's be. That's fair. Um, and I think that's, and I understand on some level that Gowing is of a class where he can afford to be. And although that's not what the original Gowing was like, 
we might say that that's what Mordred was like, potentially. I'm not sure that we would, but, you know, if we're looking at him as sort of, in some ways, a mesh... If we're looking at Gawain in this movie as someone who could have become either the Gawain we know in the story or Mordred, mm-hmm. given that they both kind of have the same origins, possibly. Um, I mean, they may or may not have the same dad, but, you know. Um, you know... It's not impossible that you would view Mordred like that in the modern era. Mm -hmm. But I think then you have to be a little more clear. There have to be stakes, right? And it's not clear until the very end when we see that sort of flash of his life that the stakes kind of are the crumbling or not of the kingdom. Yeah. Right? That if he turns into that type of leader, he's going to become king. He's going to destroy everything. That is the story we know. Mm -hmm. Mordred does destroy everything. Right? Um, he's usually killed by Arthur. Not always, but generally speaking, I mean, sometimes he does take over, but he's also usually killed by Arthur. <laughs> so, yeah. But he's nonetheless destroyed everything. Arthur also dies, right? Um, so that's one, right? But we see that sort of too late for the stake, for it to become obvious that the stakes are anything more than Gawain's own life. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe that's also part of it. Yeah. Right? Because the other thing about these stories is that they always mean more. And that's why I said, like, coming mm-hmm. back to something like Star Wars, right? These stories always are far, far more symbolic than the characters that we're looking at, right? We care about Luke and Leia and Han Solo, but of course it's about saving the universe from tyranny. Right. Right? <laughs> the tyranny of James Earl Jones's voice. Yeah. Well. Yes. Very. <laughs> I mean, that's, yeah. Um, Interestingly, if we view the beginning of the film as sort of, I mean, essentially Morgane Le Fay and her sister pushing Gawain out onto the quest, then potentially, like, I got the feeling in the Temptation of Christ montage that his mother was ultimately disappointed that he became that person. Like, she walks yes, away from him. I think... So that she would have been... Yeah. They, they were both pushing him in a direction that could potentially save the kingdom. Yes. Which, of course, is also an interesting twist. Mm-hmm. And and maybe makes her, again, Morgaze and not yeah. Morgan. Right. Although, again, in this instance, Morgan isn't trying to destroy the kingdom. She's just testing the court. But yeah. Nonetheless. Um, but yes. Yeah. They do seem to be doing this purposely to try and make him grow up. Mm-hmm. Right? You gotta make him grow up. Um, which is also nice. Mm-hmm. But, again, like, it would be nice if the stakes were clearer a little sooner. Yeah. <laughs> I think. But I want right. to say, I really enjoyed the Pink Floyd concept album part of the film. Like, that yeah. is a solid 45 minutes of filmmaking. Mm-hmm. And the yeah, entire I think the whole thing, thing is, is really beautiful. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I liked that part. I liked the whole first part, the journey, um, and the, the end part with the, the chapel. Mm-hmm. As I said, that flash of his life, when, when it all sort of really becomes clear and gets tied together. Yeah. Um, and like I said, I was sitting there thinking, we're going to go back to the chapel, right? This is, this is what would happen if he mm-hmm. left, but he's not going to have left, because, you know. Yeah. You can't call it Gawain. <laughs> I mean, you can't call it the Green Knight and end up not. Yeah. Having that ending where you have the, Mm -hmm. yeah, (laughs) where you have the sash and he has to admit it at some point. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so 
We're at but, the end. I think we have to wrap this up. Do you want to yes. offer a rating for the film? Like on a hmm. scale of medieval films, maybe? I don't know. That's a good question. Because it's in some ways very well told. It's not particularly medieval. Mm-hmm. But it's heavily, heavily based on the Middle Ages, right? Which mm-hmm. is what medievalism is. It's in some ways very faithful to the way it's based on the Middle Ages. Although it is not medieval. Right? But in as much yeah. as we take source material and use it, I think it does that with great care. And is beautifully shot. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. But, you know, on a scale of the Seventh Seal being the... And honestly, Virgin Spring. These being the two movies that are about the Middle Ages that also really do what the Middle Ages would do, which is Mm -hmm. use a symbolic story to make us really learn a lesson. (laughs) Right? It's not about authenticity necessarily of costume and stuff, although that can also be fun. But it's about the ways in which these stories are supposed to be meaningful. Um, Right? And the funny thing is, like, in some ways, this movie with its unnamed characters is very Brechtian, which, of course, is mm-hmm. a modern theater term, but means you don't get emotionally involved, you get intellectually involved, and then you think about it. Um, and the Middle Ages is frequently very Brechtian. They want you to learn a lesson. They mm-hmm. want to teach you something, right? Um, which is why Gowing is in this book of, like, basically sort of religious virtue poems. <laughs> That's unfair. They're all amazing poems. Yeah. But, right, it, it, it is that. And I think the movie captures that in a lot of ways, but not with maybe the clarity um, that it could have. <laughs> not with maybe the stakes. Yeah. I mean, it turns out that they're there, but like I said, we don't see them immediately. Yeah. And that's sort of what's lacking, right? Mm-hmm. You you always have the the stakes. High stakes. You can't afford to have things that aren't high stakes. You wouldn't waste the parchment on them. Right. right. <laughs> I mean, to say you nothing know. of the amount of time it takes to write out a, you know, a story by hand. Right. right. Like, Even if you're writing a super yeah. vulgar poem, there's still a reason, you know, you, yeah, you gotta have reasons. You gotta be motivated. Yeah, it's like 2,500 lines. Yeah, that's a <laughs> lot. That's so yeah. many lines. Yep. Okay. Yes. Awesome. So we're at like three stars, maybe? Is that where we're at? That seems fair. Yeah. Okay. Maybe three and a half. Three and a half. Okay. Yeah. Are we out of five? I don't know. I, sure. Four. <laughs> Let's say out of five. Three and a half yeah, out of five. Three and a half out of five. That okay. seems all right. All right. Yeah. Maybe there's a cool. tiny bit in like the corner of the fourth star. Okay. Uh, <laughs> it averages out, right? So. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, well, thanks for talking to me. And thank you everyone for listening. Uh, We hope you enjoyed this. If you want to check out the notes, they should be in your podcast app, or you can check out our website at askamedievalist.com. We have um, face pages, Facebook pages under that name, and also Twitter thing. You can tweet us. And uh, I think that's about it. So until next time... um, You know, look out for foxes and crazy ladies without heads and keep it medieval. Hey guys, this is M jumping back in. Um, If you've made it this far and you enjoy my contributions to the podcast, you might be interested in some of my writing. I write things like either dystopian or utopian sci-fi poetry, depending on how you look at it, queer historical romance, 
urban fantasy set in Madison in the 60s. Some of it will be coming out later this year, I hope, and I've started a newsletter so I can let people know when that happens. If you're interested in receiving those newsletters, go to tinyletter.com slash E-H Lupton, that's L-U-P-T-O-N, and you can sign up. I promise not to monetize you or disseminate you or anything like that, and um, I won't even know if you unsubscribe. So that's tinyletter.com slash E-H Lupton, and I'll put a link in the show notes. Thanks. Ask a Medievalist is a production of This Can't Be That Hard Studios and is not endorsed, acknowledged, or condoned by Virginia Commonwealth University or any of its constituent departments. Our theme music is Veni Veni Venias from Carmina Burana by Carl Orff, performed by the MIT Concert Choir and licensed under a Creative Commons Attributional Non-Commercial License version 3.0. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, why not tell a friend? For more on today's topic, including sources, annotations, and corrections, visit our website at www.askamedievalist.com. And if you have questions, feel free to drop us an email at questions at askamedievalist.com. Thank you.